Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Yeah, I don't want to oversell it. I don't know what Mr. Laidler is going to say here in a moment. But, John, I looked at the pullback, if you will, that we're seeing in the market, and it only gets you at worst, like the NASDAQ 100, to a center tendency of the recent volatility. There's not a lot of gloom and doom on the tape. It's just sort of range-bound center tendency off this morning. We know what Ben's going to say. He's going to say bye. But he's going to say buy cyclicals. Let's bring it in right now. Ben Laidler, Tower Hudson Research CEO. Ben, great to have you with us, sir. That is a change, Ben Laidler. It is not just about buying growth equities, getting into some cyclicality. Why, Ben? Because I think uh, I think the election has held people back. I think all this talk about are we going to get fiscal stimulus or not has just been a huge distraction, has, has, has held people back. Um, you know, we're waiting for a vaccine. We don't have that yet. I think, you know, roll forward. Let's get the election out of the way. Let's get a bit of certainty there. <clears> and then let's look forward. And, and what does that look like? 2021, you're going to get 3 to 4% GDP growth. You're going to get 25% earnings growth. And you're going to get a mountain more than that of these sort of deep cyclical uh, stocks. People, until very recently, have basically been ignoring. And I think those are the sort of the big beneficiaries of, um, you know, the vaccine, which we're going to get something, some more fiscal stimulus. I think we're going to get something, um, you know, Biden wins and it's a blue wave. You know, we're obviously going to get a lot more than that. Uh, I think these are the sectors of the market which are cheap, which are out of favor and have just huge operating leverage uh, to this sort of base case scenario that I have from here. And it hasn't really moved yet because I think people have been very distracted by, you um, you know, by, by this fiscal right. stimulus talk in the election and everything else. Ben, the challenge of people trying to catch up with Ben Laidler is on an absolute or relative basis, do you shift? Do you shift away from big tech and tech completely, or do you do both together and still own both areas? Yeah, I mean, I think you bring, you know you bring down those sort of quality growth, sort of big tech healthcare a bit. But you know, I think that uh, we're talking different instruments here. I mean, I think that I think the tech is just a very natural story. You know, it's with for a long time. It's going to continue to look very good with these balance sheets, with these structural growth outlook. But absolutely, I mean, it's it's where everybody's right now. There needs to be a bit of a shift. Um, but you know, the sectors I'm asking, I'm telling people to shift into. You know, industrial, small cap, real estate. I mean, these are pretty small sectors. Um, you know, a little bit of money is going to go a very long way. And I think you're going to get an awful lot of bang for your buck um, just because, I mean, just look at what's going on in third quarter earnings right now, which we're all sort of ignoring because there's a lot else going on. Um, you know, these cyclical sectors, industrials, energy, you know, have beaten expectations by, you know, over 100 percent so far. I mean, you're just getting huge operating leverage on the upside. There is, of course, the counter argument that the pandemic is accelerating and worsening dramatically in Europe and in places in the United States with a record number of cases and that we're not out of the woods. Even if we get a vaccine, the rollout is going to be complicated. The efficacy is questionable. So how long can we stay in this environment with a pandemic still very much present and pushing people away from the public realm? How long does that have to go on before you change your view? Yeah, I mean, I think the the relative surprise, and which has certainly given me, you know, a, a lot of a lot of uh, hope, has really just been the resilience 
of of the of the consumer, the resilience of the economic activity. I mean, we just had a US PMI uh, for October uh, last week at 55. I mean, very expansionary. You know, savings rates sort of 14 percent. Retail sales are sort of back to pre sort of pandemic levels. Uh, I mean, we're in pretty good shape here. I mean, I'm I'm not naive enough to think that you know this. Uh, um, you know, this can go on forever. But I think, you know, the, the story so far has been one of just extreme resilience. And I certainly think that can go forward you know, a little bit further. I mean, at some point, you know, we do need uh, we do need some more fiscal stimulus. And, and I think we're seeing, you know, everywhere that this second wave is, uh, you know, is, is, is having less deaths and, and less impact on economic activity. Um, but, but your point is well taken. I mean, it obviously can't go on forever. I mean, I am looking for a vaccine. I am looking for some more fiscal stimulus. And I am looking for this sort of second wave to have less of an impact than certainly than the first wave did. Equity futures, as Ben speaks, ticking higher. Still negative by eight-tenths of 1% on the S&P 500. Ben, just to wrap this conversation up, the correlation between cases increasing in the United States and what you think happens with consumer engagement, how loose or tight will that be? Um, I think, it, well, my previous point, I think it's a lot looser than it was previously. I mean, I think, you know, we've just learned to live with this to a certain degree. Um, those that have jobs, which clearly is not, you know, it's not everybody, but those that do have a lot more money in their pocket uh, than, uh, than than they have done historically. Uh, so, so again, I, you know, I, I, I think the consumer is going to be pretty resilient here, certainly for the next couple of months. I mean, at some point we are going to need, we are going to need more stimulus. We are going to need these sort of cases uh, to come down. But um, I, I think what we've seen so far, is that you know we have a little bit of time here ben great to catch up as always stan bullish ben laidler of tower hudson research our next guest is really good at look identifying when you come out of those ranges and we haven't we can bring mike swell in now please Thomas bring Sachs, him in. co-head of global fixed income portfolio management mike great to catch up with you sir i'm sure you heard a part of that can we just start with this 10-year treasury range we've been stuck in for a number of months now between 50 basis points and 95 at a high end in early june mike do you think we've got the setup in front of us to break out of that sure what's up jonathan i don't think i can match last week's piano my office is not large enough for a piano but i could play a little kazoo i, I won't ask that, mike if, if that makes you weak um <laughs> in terms of the, the, the range on the bond market, I think that the, the death of the bond market rally has been just that story's been written way too many times. There is still, there's still yield, there's still balance in fixed income relative to equities and other risk assets. And as long as you have investors that are long risk assets and need some level of diversification, as long as rates are zero or negative almost everywhere in the world, the 10-year Treasury at 80 basis points offers, number one, balance for your portfolio and some hedge efficacy. And secondly, is there is yield in the fixed income market. And 80 basis points may not sound like a lot, but if it rallies to 30, that's a significant, significant total return. So I think that people are writing off the bond market too early. And I think that right now with the 10-year at 80 basis points, there is value there with the Fed on hold for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Mike, that's right where I wanted to go is within the inter- internals of the market. We do that in the equity market all the time. What do you see on your desks of the appetite and the bid ask? I mean, there's a wall of money out there. I get that. But what are the internals you see in that bid, that demand for fixed income paper? So we don't see a lot of the fixed income universe way overweight duration or way overweight treasuries. What we look at is we look at a lot of the funds that are out there and to see how much, where they stand relative to the benchmark. 
And you're seeing investors right now anywhere between flat and somewhat short duration. So that, from a technical standpoint, is a very uh, positive technical for uh, for the bond market. I would say that the other very, very important point is kind of the, the volatility that we're seeing now in equity markets and that we're likely to see going into year end. It's likely to have a positive impact on the Treasury market as investors look for flight to quality. And in the near term, it may even have a positive um, uh, uh, tailwind towards the dollar as well as the flight to quality currency. Here's what I'm struggling with, Mike. You say that there is probably going to be buying of treasuries, and yet I was reading your notes, and you're bullish on high yield. You're bullish on the riskiest credit. Isn't there a contradiction here that if people are looking for the safety of treasuries at sub 1% yields, why would they be confident that they're going to get any of their money back with a high-yield bond? Well, I'd say, first off, um, there is a lot of merit to owning growth-related assets and things like high yield that are have not benefited as much from the Fed coming in and buying everything in the investment-grade universe, buying treasuries and buying mortgages. They've kind of been left out there, and there's still a decent amount of yield in the high-yield market. The benefit of treasuries paired with credit is very, very significant. When you go long duration paired with credit, you actually create better balance in a portfolio. So in the event that there is a risk off, actually treasuries would rally. And in the event that there's a you know improvement in growth and treasuries may back up, you would see credit spreads tighten very significantly. So number one, I don't think that that's an inconsistency. Secondly, I think that when you invest in things like high yield and other fixed income related assets that are not treasuries or agency mortgages that are very liquid, you think longer term. And longer term, we do believe that you're going to have um, improvements in, in care for COVID. We're going to get back to better growth next year. And so as a result, you want to stay long growth-related assets. But as we look at what's setting up right now in terms of the potential for election volatility, the potential for funding issues at the end of the year, as banks are not in a great capital position to be able to provide a lot of liquidity to markets, we actually want to be in a position where we have a little duration going into that, but you're also in a position where you have dry powder and take advantage of dislocation coming uh, in, in, at the end of the year. Oh, well, hold on a second. Let's unpack some of that. You said dislocation yeah. into the end of the year. In other words, you're expecting some of the riskier credit to potentially sell off uh, and potentially significantly heading into year end, and then you're going to be buying. What's your entry point? So I'm really trying to divide the fixed income universe into two. One is the credit-related assets where you're relying upon growth improving next year, earnings improving on the margin, and just getting paid back. And in trading credit, it's very hard to jump in and jump out pre-election, post-election, going into year-end. So long-term, we still very much like owning credit. In the very near term, though, we look at factors like volatility. And so we look at, we look at VIX, we look at bid offer spreads, as Tom was talking about earlier, and we get a little concerned that um, there's going to be volatility going to the election, and there's likely to be volatility going to your funding standpoint. So what we've done is instead of reducing positions in credit-related assets, which are going to be dependent upon growth and longer term, we're trying to free up balance sheet and portfolios to be in a position mm-hmm. to take advantage of dislocation. And that may be even things as basic as um, cash futures basis in the Treasury market, something that blew up during the COVID crisis, blew up in previous funding crisis, where you can earn very, very attractive returns right. by deploying your, deploying your balance sheet. On radio and television this morning, our simulcast, Michael Swell with us with Goldman Sachs out of Brandeis and LSC a few years back. Mike Swell, right now, what Lisa and I know with John Farrow is interview after interview, everybody says they're buying China debt. All my radar's up. 
just because everybody seems to be in the trade. What's the risk or what's the thought you have on what could be out there in 2021-22 for the certitude of owning China debt? Well, I think you have two factors that um, are risk to owning Chinese debt. One is the risk that um, growth and that the Chinese economy is very insular and continues to recover at a pace very different than the rest of the global economy. In the event that that does occur, that could create a situation where the, uh, the, the Chinese central bank provides less accommodation and you actually see rates rise and inflation pick up in, in China. That's a, that's a real risk. The other risk is that um, from a credit standpoint, people get concerned again about China, kind of the other side. And, and while the central bank has the ability to lower rates, you could have a situation where there's credit concern. I think that's less of a concern. In the end, rates are attractive in China. Rates are uh, in the three and a quarter area. They're meaningfully higher than they are in the rest of the globe. We don't expect to see inflation running away in China. And so the real rate in a country like China is actually somewhat attractive. I'm not overly concerned. That doesn't feel like a crowded trade. There aren't a lot of investors that have the ability to be able to invest in China debt that you're, that you're overly concerned that it could be one of these crowded trades, but right. obviously much, much closer. Mike Swell, I got a question. You were a ginormous basketball player at Brandeis. Did you really cut practice once because you wanted to go see Al Gore? Did you really do that? Oh, my God. You, you really did your homework. That was from 1980, uh, the 1988 election. And uh, actually, it, it was true. I, I actually worked on one of the presidential campaigns and was very active and involved. There were about eight Democratic candidates at the time. And um, I actually did go to the coach, and the coach gave, rolled his eyes and said, we don't do that here. We're here for basketball. And I said, <laughs> coach, no, I want to see uh, I want to see Al Gore. I want to hear about that new Green Deal you know, 35 years ago before yeah. the Green Deal was really a thing. And so uh, actually, it is, uh, it right. is true. And John Farrell, I would say that Brandeis basketball back then was the real deal. Were they doing Final Four? No, but it was the real deal. Very competitive program. I would, I would love to know what David Solomon would have to say if, if Mike gave him a quick call and said, I want to go see AOC and talk about the Green yeah. Deal. <laughs> Mike, great. We won't, you won't answer that one, Mike. Don't worry. <laughs> right. You don't have to answer that one. get him in trouble. Mike Swell. Appreciate that. Goldman Sachs. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right now, to get things started, Gregory Peters joins us. He's with PGM with Real uh, Portfolio Management, Money at Risk, Fixed Income, Head of Multi-Sector and Strategy, and he's won a trophy set of awards over the years and, and all that as well. Greg, I love, love, love what you say. This is a market assisting bondholders and not stockholders. What do you mean by that, that policy and all of finance and capitalism's working for bondholders right now? Yeah, so I think we're in this environment still, and we're talking about the path of the virus and rolling shutdowns and pullbacks and fiscal stimulus. I think what that really does at its core is really keep companies conservative, right? And being conservative benefits bondholders over equity holders. And so what you're continuing to see are companies worried about the path of the virus, rightfully so, uh, and so they're retrenching. Uh, uh, and, and, and so you're not going to see the same type of activity where bondholders are uh, put to the side uh, and equity holders are put forward. So I think that's the environment that we're in. Uh, I know it's perverse, but that's bond market investing. 
Greg, we've seen some huge bond issuance, some huge bond supply through 2020, through this pandemic, from both investment grade and high yield. Can you draw a distinction on what that money's been used for this time around and whether that plays into the argument you're making? That absolutely plays into the argument. So at the surface level, uh, you see the headlines of all this issuance. It's, it's somewhat scary. But then when you look a little deeper, what you see are that companies are actually churning out their existing debt at lower coupons and paying down their higher coupon short debt. So in effect, what they're doing is that they're putting their balance sheets in better shape, not worse shape. At the same time, they are preparing for additional liquidity measures. And so those two things put together, I think put bondholders in a better place, not a worse place. So it's really what you're using the proceeds for. It's not like you're using the proceeds like you have in the past to buy back equity. Right. So you're not doing that. And I think that intent and that purpose really benefits uh, being a bondholder in here. Greg, the credit market, not a monolith. You've got investment grade uh, corporate uh, issuers perhaps doing what you say. On the high yield side, I've read an increasing number of articles about pick toggle deals. Basically, if they don't want to pay their interest, they just put it on their debt balance. You see also recap dividend, uh, dividend recapitalizations. Basically, private equity firms having their portfolio companies borrow more money to give them uh, a payout. How does this fit into the conservativeness that you're talking about? Yeah, so I think you're always going to see that type of transaction, but it's not really happening in Moss. And so you can always pick to a certain deal that happened that's maybe uh, pushing the limits, but it doesn't really tell you the broader story. And the broader story is the one that I just described. So I think that's the important piece of the puzzle. Don't, don't get drawn in by these idiosyncratic kind of news stories. The broader story is one of balance sheet repair. And I think that's the driver. Let's push the politics through this conversation as well, Greg, going forward, sector to sector, what you're looking at at the moment and the kind of permutations that you guys are all talking about at PGM as far as the election is concerned. Yeah, so the election obviously uh, is at the fore. Really, it boils down to what's the new regulatory construct and the tax construct. Um, uh, uh, and so, look, I mean, I, would I, I think it's a uh, still worthy of kind of examination, but I just say a couple things. Uh, first and foremost is that I do think if you do have this kind of blue sweep that seems to have really uh, uh, captivated the market in here, that does benefit the consumer uh, as it could kind of fuel continued kind of uh, wage growth and just economic growth. Um, but, uh, but the one area that we see differently than maybe the equity market and some other areas um, uh, is the financials. Uh, so to me, it's really hard to see a situation where there could be much more regulation to damage kind of the ability for financials to operate. So th so my comment has been it's hard to kill the patient twice. And so I think it's really a pretty benign environment, all else equal, if there is a leadership change on the financial side. And then finally, on the energy front, this is highly controversial. Many investors are looking at energy. Obviously, it was the center of the last debate. Uh, but the truth of the matter, the energy companies haven't really benefited either equity holders or bondholders over the past several years. So some kind of change and alteration in the spending mix and maybe being less profligate is, isn't such a bad thing. So I'm actually pretty excited over the alpha opportunities within the energy space yeah. going forward. 
Greg, the great understanding is that bonds as a hedge don't work anymore. So I got to go find something else, whether it's preferred, bank preferreds, et cetera, or 47 other intangible assets as well. Is that going to happen? I mean, a bond is a bond. A fixed income as a hedge is, is just what it is, a predictable stream of, a, of cash flows. Can there be an alternative? I think there can, but it's way too early. So I agree with Mike Twell, who was on previously. I think it's way too early uh, to call the death of the bond market. But this is really picking up steam as a story. But it, you know, I mean, we're in an environment where real yields are negative, right? So the fact that you're getting, you know, 70, 80, 150 basis points, depending on where you are on the curve, matters a lot relative to that. So I still think bonds add a lot of value to the portfolio. Uh, and there's a thing called risk adjustment. So you are, um, you know, getting a return for a lot less risk. And I think that matters. So uh, there's this big storyline going on around the death of the bond market and 60, 40s dead. <laughs> I think it's way too early for that. Uh, and, and bonds do what they're supposed to do. You see it today. Uh, uh, and I'll believe, you know, you'll continue to see it. So uh, I'm so bullish uh, on the outlook for bonds. And in fact, I mean, I think it's going to be somewhat volatile here over the near term within a, a confined range. But I think the back end of the curve uh, has actually value here. Uh, uh, and so we're actually pretty constructive on the level of yields uh, uh, in the U.S. bond market. Greg Peters, bond specialist. Bonds aren't over. Greg Peters of PGM. Great <laughs> to catch up with you, sir. As always, thank, thank you. Right now is a great joy. If you go to a fancy school like Harvard and you get a bunch of fancy degrees, if you are ever so lucky, you get to go to the founding school. That would be William and Mary and their law school of 1779. It was an historic moment for the nation when a number of people, including Mr. Jefferson, got together and said, we have to be different. And they did that at William & Mary. Rebecca Green is at Williams & Mary. She is the winner of their acclaimed teaching award given by uh, graduate students, and that is a good and wonderful thing. Professor Green, thank you so much for joining us on election transparency. Can our radio listeners, our television listeners, can they be confident of safety at the voting booth on November 3rd? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and second of all, absolutely, they can. Um, election officials and local governments have been working hard to ensure that we have a safe and secure election. There have been so many elections going back to the founding of William and Mary, 1800, particularly 1824, and then on to 2020 that are this fractious. Is it normal to be this angry where there's so much tension about our voting process? Um, you know, I would not say it's normal. We certainly do have a long history of problems at the polls, but um, it is um, the case, I think, that we're in, you know, a hyper-partisan mode. And, you know, we, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we certainly haven't seen anything um, like um, 
you know, regular comments emanating from the White House that um, there's a problem with our election administration. So so it, it certainly is a different tone than any previous election, at least in, in the modern era. Rebecca, there's a question about November 3rd. It will be the last day of voting. And then there's a question about the weeks after that, as both sides of this uh, campaign get their cavalry together to fight the legal uh, foundations of this vote. What are some of the, uh, the battles that you're expecting to see in the court uh, based on both President Trump and former Vice President Biden's comments so far? Yeah, well, so I think the first thing to say is that post-election litigation is normal. It's part of our system. It's how we resolve disputes. And this country has a long history of resolving post-election disputes in the courts. Um, You know, Post-election disputes are generally guided by state law, so it, you know it's different in every state um, how this will all unfold if it if it, if it unfolds. Um, and you know there's there's um, kind of three different well there's there's different kinds of you know there's different types of post-election litigation. So um, you know everyone's probably familiar with recounts when when you know elections are close, candidates can call for recounts, and again that process is governed by state law. Um, and then there are ways that candidates and campaigns can challenge um, either, you know, ballots or they can allege official misconduct. It's called different things in different states, but it's generally a contest or a protest are the words that are most often used. And so those are the various vehicles by which you can, you know, challenge or, or um, you know, litigate uh, an election result. And so we can, we can expect if it's close, we can expect to see, um, you know, one or both uh, unfold. So there's a high likelihood that Amy Coney Barrett will get confirmed to the Supreme Court as soon as this evening, if she does passes through the Senate today. What's your expectation about a potential case that would come between the Supreme Court the way we saw uh, back in 2000? Well, you know, I think it's pretty unlikely that we see uh, a 2000-like, you know, event. I mean, there would have to be a lot of circumstances that would coincide for that to come about. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that the whole race came down to Florida and that the, you know, the race in Florida was, was 537 votes, um, you know, spread. So I think, you know, the chances of lightning striking again seem pretty remote to me. Um, I think what's more likely is a case could end up at the Supreme Court that, you know, deals with the fundamental powers of state legislatures versus state courts. That's a, that's a, Kind of, we've already seen a premonition of that um, with a 4-4 split last week on that question, um, and that that could reemerge as you know there are some unsettled questions about um, you know authority in mm-hmm. uh, in elections in states. Rebecca Green, uh, Brian Rosenthal, and Michael Rothfeld in the New York Times this morning have an absolutely brilliant article on the nepotism involved. In this case, it happens to be, I believe, the city of New York election process and all that. How are we going to vote five or 10 years from now? Do you have, in your expert view, a better way we're going to vote than the nepotism and the local, local, local politics of this nation's electoral process? Yeah, you know, it's pretty extraordinary when when we have 
foreign visitors come and look at our, our election system, they're often amazed that we have this very decentralized and, and sort of partisan-based election administration yeah. in this country. And it is, you know, many volumes have been written about how problematic um, it is for a lot of reasons. But uh, on the other hand, you know, if you look at 2016 and hopefully in 2020, one of the features of our system being so decentralized is that it's very hard to do anything to harm it from the outside, right? Because um, you'd have to, it, there's essentially 10,000 different elections in this country. And so that, that kind of provides some protection in terms of the kinds of right. potential harms that we see. So um, it's sort of a two-sided coin in terms of reform and like what we might, you know, what changes we might have, um, you know, 10 years from now. You could imagine after this insane election season that Congress decides to take a little bit more of a heavy hand in terms yeah. of um, mandating yeah. some certain basics in yeah. terms of how we how we run our elections. This has been a joy. Rebecca Green, thank you so much. Professor Green at the Law School of the College of William uh, and Mary. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.